0: The Advent reason, reading this morning is from Philippians 2, 1-11 So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of spirit Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind Do nothing from rivalry or conceit But in humility count others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Had this mind among yourselves, which is of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be, a, be something that should be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So so that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
1: Good morning. The Old Testament reading comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, verses 1 through 12. Remind you that this scripture was written, written 700 years before the birth of Christ. You can find it on page 613 in the, the um, Q Bible. Hear the word of our Lord Who has believed what they have heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand.
2: Now that we have heard the word of the Lord proclaimed, let us join together in praying the prayer of confession and humility as printed in the bulletin. Father, in our pride, there are places that we have refused to follow Jesus. He laid aside his prominence. We want to keep ours. He considered others more important than himself. Our first consideration has been our own gratification. As a servant, he stooped to wash the feet of friends who would soon desert him. We find it difficult in our self-importance to lower ourselves to such depths. We demand that others be deserving of our love and service. Teach us your grace. Teach us his humility. May our conversations encourage our fellow servants. May our words heal and our actions unselfishly serve even those who have injured us. Teach us to bind the leopards' sores, to companion the lonely, to seek the outcast, and to serve even the servants. Grow us in His grace for His honor.
3: Amen. Those who believe in the gospel of grace, lift up your heads with confidence and hear the assurance of pardon of your sin. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great... Is God's steadfast love towards those who fear Him? As far as the East is from the West, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are with us because you have promised to be with us. Lord, you are good to us because you have promised to be good to us in Christ. Lord, may we be a people that are known by our love for one another. Give us a vision to expand Your kingdom by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in His name we pray. Amen.
4: You may be seated. Turn to the scripture that we read, uh, that, we, that we read this morning from uh, from Philippians with Wynn and Amanda. And I'm going to suggest that that uh, you do something that that I have done during this week and during this advent season, when uh, this this passage in Philippians two is one of the great passages in the New Testament about the incarnation. Uh, we should. We should read this during the Advent season. It should be a part of our personal reading. Uh, along with John chapter 1, the Word became flesh. Along with Luke 1 and 2, and Matthew 1 and 2, uh, as uh, they tell the story of the birth of Christ. But I would add one scripture to that. And I don't mention it uh, in the sermon this morning. It's on your scripture sheet, Isaiah 53. It's the greatest description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, powerful, powerful passage. And it has meant uh, much to me during this Advent season to read that scripture, to read Isaiah 53 with with these other uh, passages that deal with the incarnation. Uh I can just uh, I, I can tell you it will powerfully affect you if you just do that consistently. Uh, do that for this, this week uh, as you read again those stories that are so familiar. Add to that Isaiah chapter 53. Before we look at Philippians chapter 2, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to teach us. Our fathers, we bow before you this morning, a congregation of your priests. We lay before you Priscilla Turner. Our father, as she is on hospice, we pray that you would continue to sustain that indomitable spirit that we've seen. That looks forward with anticipation. So bless her in this time and cause us to be a blessing to her. And pray for Jim Bennington, for Billy Griggs, for Doug Hay. Father, bless these. You know their needs and we know you love them. And we ask, Father, in their behalf that you would minister to them in the power of your Holy Spirit. And now as we open your word, And this passage is incredibly deep, incredibly high, incredibly wide. Father, we we cannot totally understand. We can't get our minds around it. But we pray this morning that you will so communicate your word to us from Philippians 2, that we in the end, will stand in awe at the incarnation. At the great work of your son, Jesus Christ. I cannot teach that way. No one that stands behind this desk can teach that way. But Father, you can speak that way to your children. You can teach us in the power of your Holy Spirit. We've heard your voice before. We've been changed. We're not the same people that we were. and We yearn for that change to continue. We yearn to grow in that change. So we pray again this morning, one more time that you would teach us and that would, you would change us. Maybe some of us for the first time for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The great humiliation. Of the glorious Son. Here is the Apostle John's story of the birth of Jesus. Here is how John described the incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, the same chapter. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. John began the story of the incarnation in heaven with the glorious sun leaving the splendor and grandeur of heaven. There we see the the preexistent sun in perfect harmony, glorious harmony. With the Father and the Holy Spirit. Designing and creating what is beyond imagination. John begins with the Son of God leaving glory. Matthew and Luke, on the other hand, quite different. They began their story of the incarnation. Their story of the miraculous conception. And birth of Jesus with Mary and Joseph, angels, shepherds, Magi. They spoke not of his leaving glory, they spoke of the arrival of the Messiah. You can think about that. Leaving glory. And arriving. In the form of a babe. Thus, in the incarnation, this eternal Son humbled himself. He was not coming to glory, he was leaving glory. He was not coming to wealth, he was leaving wealth. Thus, Bible scholars and theologians refer to this, looking at the incarnation in this way, as the humiliation of the Messiah. The condescension of Christ. That's the subject of Philippians 2. Paul understood the contrast between John and Matthew and Luke. Paul speaks powerfully in Philippians 2 of his condescension, leaving the glory of heaven for the darkness of this world. And that's where we'll begin. I want you to look at this passage and see first the preeminence, the preeminence of Jesus. Look at verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God. The NIV reads, who being in very nature God. Paul was echoing the words of John 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He's speaking of the preeminence of the Word. We cannot understand. People, we cannot understand the incarnation, the life of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. Apart from seeing the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, and grasping something of his life before the incarnation. You can't understand how he can say to the blind man, see. The man saw. How he can say to the deaf, hear. Hear. The deaf here. We can't understand that unless we understand that before Bethlehem, he was the eternal Son of God in glory. How can how how Jesus can be genuinely man and genuinely God? I can't grasp it. It's a mystery. We can't get our minds around it. However, we can do this. We can do this. We can know that before the Son of God took on flesh, he was the eternal Son of God with the Father and Holy Spirit. Louis Burkhoff is one of my favorite theologians in all of history. He was a Dutch theologian. And he wrote this. It's not possible. It's not possible to speak of the incarnation of one who had no previous existence. In other words, to come into the flesh, there has to be a pre existence. And he went on to point out that Jesus, the man, did not acquire deity. Rather, the eternal Son of God took on humanity. Thus, you have Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man. God began to reveal this truth all through the Old Testament. We've seen it during this Advent season. Look on your scripture sheet at Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one for me, who is to be a ruler in Israel. And then look at these last nine words. Whose origin is from old, from ancient days. In other words, he preexisted. He's coming forth, but he existed before. Look at John 3, 13, the words of Jesus. No one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven. Look at John 6, 38, for I've come down from heaven. And I love this passage as he speaks to the Pharisees in, Luke, in in John 8, 56. He says to the Pharisees, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So, so the Jews, the Pharisees said to him, you're not yet 15 years old. And you've seen Abraham. Jesus said, truly. You, folks, he's, he's looking right in their face and saying, I am the son of God. He said, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I was there. This the eternal son. And then that precious prayer in John 17:5. His mission is done. He's ready to go home. He's about to go to the cross, be raised. He's coming to the end of his great mission. And what does he say? And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world ever existed. He doesn't just go back. He goes back to before the universe existed and said, I was there with you. I was born in San Diego, California in 1944. My father was in the Marine Corps preparing to ship out to the South Pacific. I did not exist before I was conceived in my mother's womb. My history started with my conception and birth in 1944. Jesus' history started in the eons of eternity as the Son of God. Incarnate is the Latin. In flesh. Incarnate. The incarnation of the Son of God. He took on flesh. The preeminence of Jesus. Next I want you to see a profound condescension. So what happened? Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. People, the condescension was not that he was born in a barn or that his first bed was a feed trough. That's not the point of this. He said, made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When he was born in the likeness of men, it was a condescension that could not be imagined. The Greek word used here is kenosis. It means to empty. He emptied himself. There's been a 2000 year debate in the church centered on the doctrine of kenosis. What did he give up? He emptied himself. We've already said he didn't give up his deity. He could look at a blind man and make him see by fiat. He could make a paralyzed person walk. He could stop storms. He could raise the dead. He could do only what God could do. He didn't empty himself of deity. But he laid aside the glory. We can make much of what he left behind. But to understand the condescension, we must understand what he took to himself. He went from being the creator who was served and worshiped to being the creation who served. He became a servant born under the law, born a man, subject to being a man. If he had been born the son of an earthly king, he would have still, if he had been born in a palace, he would still be a servant. If he had been born in the Ritz Ritz Carlton instead of a barn, it would have still been that same great condescension. Put it this way. What if you moved from your house in Fayette County to the slum area of the most of the poorest city in the world? There you lived in a filthy one room apartment with three other families. Your clothes were rags, stench, decay, and flies were everywhere. That would be a huge distance for any of us to travel culturally. But multiply that distance. Imagine that really happening. Multiply it a million times. And you can't even come close to the distance traveled by the sun when he became flesh in a fallen world. He was physical. He knew hunger, thirst, pain. He would get dust in his eyes and bruises on his feet. He would become weary and bone tired. The son had never known this in all of those eons. He came to a fallen world. He left the environment of heaven to live in a cursed land. Thorns and thistles grew here. Disease, sickness, decay and death were everywhere. There was no sin in heaven. Now he was, just think about that, no sin. And now he was surrounded by idolatry, profanity, envy, theft, murder, hatred, greed, jealousy, adultery. Have you ever been around sin that was so gross and so perverse that it actually made you sick? Several times, as I've listened to people's stories, I've heard perversion that I'm sorry that I heard. So bad, so evil, so dark. Think about this I'm a sinner. And if we're capable of looking at some perversion or hearing some, some, something of the horrid darkness of evil, and it's repulsive to us, we're sinners. Think about the perfection of the Son of God. The sin that he would have experienced with people inside the temple of God was repulsive. That's the humiliation. The son to the sewer. In every part of the Gospels, we see his humiliation. On every page, think about it. In his infancy, the son of God had to flee from a petty provincial king. You can imagine Gabriel saying, Father, let me take care of Herod. We'll end this right now. He had to endure his cousin, the greatest prophet who had ever lived. He had to endure John the Baptist being jailed and beheaded by an insane and perverse King Herod. And here come the Pharisees challenging him, quoting the very scripture that he spoke in he. That he's spoken to the world. They're quoting it as if they know more than he does. We see his disciples misunderstanding, forsaking, betray him and denying. You look at this and you begin with the preeminence of Jesus and then you're slapped with this profound condescension. Thirdly, I want you to see a voluntary condescension. Look at it with me again. Reading, beginning with the sixth verse, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. Understand this. This is not the story of earth reaching up and saying, save us and and snatching heaven down to earth, forcing the issue. Rather, this is heaven laying hold of earth. No one could ever move God into a condition or state of humiliation. If he's there, he's there out of choice. Go with Jesus to Gethsemane. They come to arrest him. They know what's coming. Disciples know what's coming. Jesus knows what's coming. He'll be be flogged. They'll almost beat him to death. Then they'll nail him to a cross. And Peter attacked the soldiers that came. And what did Christ say? Peter, Peter, you're going to protect me. The son of God, you're going to protect me. Peter, do you understand? This is his exact words. Look it up. He said, I could call 12 legions of angels right now. And in the next few minutes, I could end the Roman Empire. Peter, I'm here because I choose to be here. I choose to be arrested. Do you think there's any human power that can arrest Jesus? Really? Really? Peter, they're going to nail me to a cross. But I'll only be on that cross because I've chosen this path. This is a part of the plan. Go to the cross and ask him, Why are you here? Why are you nailed to those cross beams? He's answered that question. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. He was not there, a helpless victim caught in the gears of fate. He was not there through the machinations of the government of Rome. they by choice. And we should love that. If it's not by his choice, then his sacrifice says nothing of his love. It's by his choice. Then how much does he love us? What did Paul say? God demonstrates his love for us in this. How? How does he demonstrate his love for us? Because he gives us houses and cars and children and families. No. God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and it was voluntary. Chad Walsh. Probably you have not heard of him. He was an American poet. An Episcopal priest. He's known for his poetry. But he's known. As the man, the American that did more than anyone. To introduce the great C.S. Lewis to the American public. Uh, in 1945, 49, 50. Uh, he Literally. Introduced C.S. Lewis to the world in which we live in the United States. Chad Walsh in one of his poems writes about Jesus on the cross and he writes of him being mocked by the Pharisees. If you're the son of God come down off the cross. You said you'd build the temple. You'd, if the temple was torn down, you'd build it in three days. You can't even save yourself and they spit on him. And in the point, Jesus jerks his right arm from the cross. He jerks his left arm from the cross. He lifts himself up and lands on his feet and stomps off through the crowd. What was Chad Waltz saying? He was saying he humbled himself. When being teased, when being mocked, he didn't come off the cross. And he was saying he could have come off of that cross. He could have said, I've had it. This is not going to happen. It was a voluntary condescension. The preeminence of Jesus, a profound condescension a voluntary condescension finally the ultimate condescension Philippians 2 verse 8 the last words he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even even death on a cross The ultimate humiliation of the son was not being born a man or being born in a barn or being chased by a petty key. We want to say, well, his greatest humiliation had to be when, when on the cross, when he went to the cross and our sin was laid on him. All the filth. He was dressed in all the sin, all the evil. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That had to be his greatest humiliation, to stand before the Father dressed in such evil. Many times we've seen individuals commit such evil that they will not go out into public. They're so ashamed. Humiliation is so too great. Sometimes parents do not want a son or daughter has committed some act that is repulsive to them. They don't permit their son or daughter to go out into public. They send them away or keep them inside. Jesus, the son of God and son of man, was before God and he was covered with heinous, insidious, blasphemous evil. Certainly that had to be his greatest humiliation. I knew a young lady who came from absolute poverty, awful poverty. She quit school just before junior high school because she was ashamed of the way that she was dressed. There Jesus was before all of heaven, dressed in unrighteousness. The angels must have gasped to see the eternal son dressed in filthy rags. But people, that was not his greatest shame. That was not his greatest humiliation. The greatest humiliation came when his father said, I don't know you. I never knew you. When judgment fell on the son for all that sin. When justice descended. That's when Jesus screamed in the greatest agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At his baptism, the father spoke and he said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The Mount of Transfiguration, when he was one time transfigured where they saw this preexistent glory. What did God, what did the Father say? This is my beloved son. At Calvary, he didn't say that. He poured out his wrath and justice. And he said, I don't know you. Do you see it? From the glory of the Trinity, from the glory of eternity, from the glory of heaven to a bloody Roman cross to his own father denying that he knew him. We will never hear the words. I never knew you. Because he heard them for us. The only way we'll ever hear those words. Is that you go to that cross. Where the father emptied his justice. And said I don't know you. The only way you'll ever hear. Is if you walk away from that cross. And say it's not for me. You'll hear the words. And they'll be the most humiliating words you've ever heard. I do not know you. But our greatest joy is for Jesus to stand in eternity. Say I know you. I know you by name. You're mine. Are him.